listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Perhaps some of the oldest literature that we have as a species comes to us from the book of Job. Job might be as old, if not older, than 4,000 years old. And in the book of Job, somewhere along chapter 3, verse 25, is a passage that I find myself quoting all the time. It goes like this. What I fear and dread most has come upon me. (laughs) Maybe you've had a day like that where you've just said, oh, the thing that I was most dreading or the thing that I've most been afraid of has come upon me. Well, I had that experience this summer. Let me explain. I was brought up in a small little Bible church up in the panhandle of Texas, a little town called Borger. You're right to feel sorry for me. It's okay. (laughs) And I was uh, a little boy in this church, and it was started by a bunch of professors, actually, from the seminary that I would one day actually go to and graduate from, Dallas Theological Seminary. So good little church, strong teaching, but one of the fundamental portions, the warp and the woof of this little church, was its commitment to missions. We sponsored and took care of uh, and resourced a whole bunch of missionaries, and we had this cool bulletin board in our fellowship hall, and me and the other punks would go by with a big pen and draw mustaches on them, and they'd make them mad, and they'd pull those down and put the pictures back up. I remember guys like Ken Chapman was this nerdy dentist in Uganda who I'm sure has fixed more teeth than I can, can ever, ever imagine. And all these, the Van Ziles were down in Colombia, the Steels were in the Philippines, and I still remember this. And I made a deal with God, which I'm sure he really appreciated. I said, look, here's the deal, God. Let me, let me, let me sort of let you know how this is going to go. Let me, let me tell you how this is going to work. I'll pretty much do anything. I'll, look, I, you're welcome. You're, it's okay. You're welcome to have me. I, I, don't mention it. But, here, but here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to be a missionary because those dudes are dorks. All right? I mean, come on. You, you've seen them, right? I mean, they would come and they would make their periodic reports about once every six months or sometimes once a year. And these poor guys would walk in and their pants were too short and, and they wore these little untucked short sleeve shirts and they had thick glasses and very reasonable, comfortable shoes. And I figured, well, they, they, they couldn't make it in the real world. And so apparently they went and were missionaries. But you know what, God? Not this guy. I'm, I, look, I'm, I'm kind of kind of awesome. And so I'm not going to do the missions thing, but you know what? I'm sure you can find somebody else that will. And then two things happened. Number one, my wife and I went on a missions trip in February 2003 to Poland. Poland is frosty in February, let me just tell you. And we got to spend a week with all of these missionaries who uh, had been supporting countries of Eastern Europe, from the Baltic states in Poland, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, all these places. And they were literally, most of them, they were the only Christian in their town. And I saw these people come together, and it struck me. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Virtually every one of these people is better at life than me in spades. I mean, these people are awesome. These people are like rock stars, and they're missionaries. That's weird. And I got to watch them come together around this crusty, dusty, World War II era 
upright piano and sing songs like I had never heard singing before. Now, I was singing because that's what we were doing, was, but these people were singing, and tears were streaming down their faces, and I was, I was totally gobsmacked. Like, this is what it, wow, this is what it looks like. And then this year, as many of you know, my family and I, this time with my two sons, we got to go to Europe for a mission trip. We went to Spain, and we went to Italy, and uh, we got to spend some time with a church in Barcelona called Ciutat Nova. It's the only Catalan-speaking evangelical church in that part of the country, and I got to hear a guy named Chavi Memba bring the lumber. One of the most expositionally sound sermons I have ever heard, and he did it in Catalan. And it was amazing. I was so impressed. I was so blessed. And then we went over to the eastern coast of Italy in Abruzzo region, in a town called Mosciano, and I heard a, name, a guy named Gabriele Guido. And he preached on what the church is from 1 Timothy 3. Blew my socks off. 50 minutes with PowerPoint. Thank you very much. And it was awesome. I couldn't get enough. I thought, wow, it's, it's happening. And then lo and behold, in a moment of sheer uh, lack of judgment, Robbie Roberts, the missionary that we support here from Bethel, who is in Italy, let me preach. And so I found a picture of me getting to preach in Italy a couple of weeks ago. And this is what I found. Oh, yeah. What I feared most has come upon me. There I am with a short sleeve, untucked shirt, <laughs> pants are too short, thick glasses, reasonably comfortable shoes. I have become a missionary. And I told Jeff Bice, I was like, oh, man, I, I'm the dorkiest looking dude ever. But I was comfy, y'all. Well, as is his want, God got his man. And I'm so glad that he did. I was so thrilled to get to have been a part of that. Which leads me to our text this morning. Stephanie's already read it, but it's Psalm 117. And I call this the delight of all nations. And I hope that by the end of our time today, this God of whom we will speak is also your deepest delight. I'm going to read it again. Psalm 117. It's just two verses. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. It is the shortest of all psalms. It is the shortest chapter in our Bible. It is only 16 Hebrew words. And yet... These 16 words will last us for all eternity. It's right dead center of our Bible. Psalm 117, one of the Psalms, is the inspired hymn book of the people of God. Now, it's an interesting Psalm to choose because we are still in the middle of our summer series, The Pursuit of Wisdom. And we have said that wisdom is seeing the world through God's eyes. If we knew what God knows, we would want what God wants. Part of the way we do that is we come to God's word and we ask his spirit to change our thinking and our feeling. That's the whole theme of Psalms, thinking and feeling with God. Because apart from God, there's no point in thinking and feeling, you see. But the Psalms captivates our thinking. It, it stimulates our intellectual faculties, but it also stirs our hearts. And we, ah, oh, we praise Psalm 117 is one of the Hallel 
Psalms. There's actually three different groups of Hallel Psalms. This is the middle portion. It's called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. For those of you who will go on Bible Jeopardy later this afternoon, now you know. This is in the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Why? Because it all has to do with Israel's time in Egypt and how God delivered them out of Egypt, specifically with the Passover. And so these Psalms were generally recited corporately and nationally by the entire nation of Israel. Sometime in the fall, probably in September, Psalm 118, that comes right after this one, was almost certainly to be recited by the nation in response to the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe the Feast of Trumpets, we don't know for sure. But these are fall psalms, and they're halal. The very first expression, praise the Lord. The very last expression, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. 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 Praise Yahweh. I find myself a little convicted when I realize that I will find myself uttering praise the Lord or hallelujah when I drive by and the line at Cain's is not too terribly long. Seems like a misusage of the psalmist's call to stop and to lift voice loudly. Yahweh. Praise in our Bible is always, always a plural verb. You cannot praise by yourself quietly. You're doing it wrong. Oh, is it worship? Certainly. Is it response? Of course. But praise is public, it is plural, and it's kind of noisy. And so the psalmist starts off and he says, Praise the Lord, Israel, but not you other uncircumcised losers. No, that's weird. This is Israel gathered in Jerusalem for a national feast. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. It's a... Uh, it's a repetition. It's Hebrew parallelism. They didn't have underlined, bold, italics, highlighting, blinking emojis for emphasis. They say the same thing two different ways to really get your attention. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. Now, if you know much about the nation of Israel in antiquity, they were not real neighbor friendly. They were supposed to have been, but they sort of very quickly took on an air of superiority because they're God's people. And... They really weren't generally having an eye to the nations around them except for we want their necks under our boots. And yet, the inspired hymn book has the nation of Israel saying, hey, everybody, all the nations, all the peoples, say hallelujah. Now, if you're going to say hallelujah, th that means that you cannot say hallelujah or kimosh or Marduk, or any of the other gods of the regional pantheon. It is to turn away from anything less than. It is to no longer ever settle for anything less. It is a call to all peoples and all nations to praise God. All the peoples of the earth, not just the church, not just Israel, 
but all the peoples of the earth are called to praise God. It is God's plan for every person's life. I don't know all of you that well. Some of you haven't met at all, but here's what I can tell you with complete certainty, conviction, and confidence. God's will for your life is that you praise him. And you will never be a fulfilled human being until such time as you do. This is what we believe. It comes right out of the book. It's a call for all people of the world to experience these things about God. Two things verse 2 gives us. His steadfast love, or your Bible translation might say his loving kindness, his chesed. I think other than the name of God, other than the name of God, this is probably, or at least it is to me, the single most important word of the Old Testament. Chesed. His loving kindness, his covenant-keeping love, his steadfast mercy, his unchanging, moving his life towards us. <laughs> this is really good news. God is sovereign. He is mighty. He is powerful. That's not good news unless he also loves you. Chesed. He moves his life towards. He has always been a sending God. It is his very nature. You already say, hallelujah. This hallelujah happens 23 times in the Psalms. And here's why we say, praise Yahweh for his chesed, his steadfast love, his covenant-keeping, great mercy toward us. And it has built in the notion that it's undeserved and likely unrequited. But it goes out nonetheless, praise God. And his faithfulness, your Bible's translation might say truth. His emet. He does not change. He is right in his decision to love. It is, it is correct. From God's mind and his perspective, this is the thing that is most correct. We are to give him praise because of his chesed and his emet, his loving kindness and his truth. God's plan is that people experience his goodness. The, the call, the exhortation is to all nations and all peoples. And please notice that peoples is plural. That's kind of interesting. Can a people be plural? Yes. Peoples is a word. It's a, it's a group of groups. A people is a distinct group of people who have a unique culture, not just a national, political, or linguistic boundary. That's how we would define a people group. Let me read that again. A group of people who have a unique culture, not just a national, political, or linguistic boundary. I got to spend some time a couple weeks ago in this region called Catalonia. Oh, it's in Spain, but they don't care. They are a nation without a state, they would say. The people of Catalonia is north, northeastern Spain, some of southern France, Andorra, and they speak Catalan. And they don't want to speak French or Spanish. They want to speak that language. In fact, they're holding an illegal election on October 1st to try to be a nation again. It's not going to work. But that is a people group. And less than 1% of them are evangelical Christian. This people group, the collection of ministry and missions agencies estimate that there are 11,227 people groups. 11,227. Now, they could be off by two or three. Big whoop. Go with me on this. A little over 11,000. And that 6,614 of them are unreached, which means they have a population of less than 2% of evangelical Christians where they can support themselves. Now, I got through seminary 
without having to really ever do any math. Praise God. But I can tell you that 11,200 is, take away the 6,614, carry the one. Yeah, more than half of the people groups on our planet are unreached. We're not talking about that they have to have like a whole bunch of, you know, they just have to have at least 2% of the population is evangelical and can support themselves evangelically. More than half of the people groups on the planet are not. Of those 6,614 unreached people groups, 68 of them have more than 10 million people. So again, I'd, I'd really revile math, but 68 times 10, 10 million. It's like more than 68 million people just in those subsets that are completely unreached in our day and age. That is astonishing. It has to get our attention. More than half of the nations or the peoples in the world today are not praising or extolling the Lord. In other words, across the surface of the globe today, Psalm 117, by and large, is not happening. I want you to think about that. Psalm 117 is not happening. And this is where missions comes in. However, let me qualify this. I agree with John Piper, who famously said many times, missions isn't the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Since Psalm 117 is not happening in the world, we make it our business to worship well. People magnify themselves instead of God. Look at the world around you. Look at the community in which you live. Turn on the news, read it online, swipe it on your tablet or phone. You will see all sorts of discomfort and dysfunction all around the planet. Why? Because people are not doing 117. Because they magnify themselves. They elevate self. And in those cases, categorically, every single time, there will be oppression, sadness, pain, and hurt. The attempt of throwing off any other institution or shackle only ever produces more harm and hurt. I'm not making this stuff up. All you got to do is read the news and you'll see that this is true. So we are to show them the joy of truth. Psalm 147 verse 1 puts it this way. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Because it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. Three things here. It is actually good. He's good for you. It's good for you. What do you need? Your body was designed and devised to praise. And to the extent that that instrument is not being tuned to sing God's praise, it is unfulfilled. It is good. It is very good to sing praises to our God. I can tell so many peoples and people groups and individuals who could use some good in their life, who have gone out and found and searched for every other sense or, or shape of good in the world and have always came up lacking. It is pleasant. You just turn on the news and see so many people throwing rocks and shaking their fists, and you go, you know what that dude's not right now? It's pleasant. Holmes could sure use some pleasantries in his life. And I'm not even just talking about, you know, holding hands and planting trees and having really good guacamole. I'm talking about Legitsky pleasantries. Praising God produces pleasantries. And a song of praise is fitting. It works. It makes sense. Have you ever, have you ever been busted 
praise him? Well, like where there's that awkward deal where you're just, mm, mm, you're, you're, you're going. The head's doing and you're at a stoplight and you're doing the thing and someone pulls up and you're like, oh, I've got a quick mind. <laughs> you just totally got busted praising. No. No. That's too bad. It's a contagious thing, this praise. This is why he starts off, praise the Lord. God is good theme of the Psalms. He is good, but the people, groups of the world do not see that God is good. Psalm 67.4 puts it this way, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Even in the Old Testament, a thousand years before the coming of Christ, the nations were called to respond and praise Yahweh. But in those areas where God's not worse than man is, there's always oppression and an absence of joy. And so, missions is an effort to show people our delight. Hear that very carefully. Missions is an effort to show people our delight. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, man cannot help but express delight in the object of his worship. All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Pleasure not shared is not pleasure at all. The thing that we love the most, the thing that we really do care about the most, the thing that we really do fixate on, we share. We can't help it. It's how we were designed. It's how we come right out of the wrapper. C.S. Lewis was right. We'll talk about our favorite activity or our hobby, sports, movies, TV shows, our favorite Kardashian you know who it is. Uh-huh. All the things that we fixate on, we can't help but share it with one another. Hey, did you hear about? Did you watch that game? Did you see that thing? Have you seen those shoes? Whatever. Our hearts always, always arrive in praise for the thing that we love most. And so we invite others. Isn't this thing that I'm talking about, isn't it lovely? Do you, do you see how this is lovely? About nine years ago, a man named Michael Krauss wrote in the London Financial Times. No, I don't read the London Financial Times, but I did find this article. And his problem was with religion and how organized religion was causing an economic problem in the UK. And he said, I don't understand religion. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, Krauss wrote, that there is a God who created all of us. Isn't it selfish and isn't it needy and isn't it immoral that he would expect for us to worship him? I mean, we all know dictators and leaders who are so insecure that they, de they demand adulation and respect and honor and worship. Surely, this cannot be God. Which Christian orthodoxy responds to Michael Krauss and says, oh, no, 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 you misunderstand. God does not need our worship. Put it another way. God is not completed by our worship of him. Oh, no. We are completed by our worship of him. It's for our sakes. He doesn't need it. It is a gift. Did you know that worship itself is a grace, that God chooses to receive it? If you've heard me sing, you know that it is a grace that God chooses to receive that. But he does, and I think he loves it. We are completed by our worship of him. So why should we worship? Well, because God has kept his promise. Psalm 117 talks about loving kindness and faithfulness. And God has done it toward Israel, toward the church. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abram. 
Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 2, God says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing to all of the nations. I will bless those that bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It is finished. God, how are you going to do that? How is this going to happen? God has always been ascending God. He sends his own son. Now, I want you to imagine, go with me on this, about 1950 years ago, first century Rome, there's a group of people gathered together in a home. And they're struggling with how to be this thing called the church. There are some Jewish believers who for 1,400 years were adhering to Jewish tradition and custom with respect to dress and diet and all of those things, but they are believers. And then there's all these ugh, Romans and Greeks and Egyptians and people from Kansas, and they're all in there together, and they're also believers. And they're struggling to say, well, well how can we coexist? How can we be the thing that is the church. How can Genesis 12 really be happening? Well, this particular evening of teaching was no other. They had a, a famous apostle, a pastor, a preacher, a teacher with them. It was Paul. And in a very real sense, I imagine sitting in his home in Rome, the apostle Paul opens his Old Testament and right from the scriptures tells them this is what it means to be the people of God. And it comes to us from Psalm 117. Now, I'm not using my imagination too far flung. Watch what Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 to 11. Paul says this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jewish people, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, that's Abram, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, that the Gentiles would glorify God as it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, and Paul drops Psalm 117, and one of the most awesome mic drops ever. Again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. They're asking Paul, is this it? Did this happen? This is, the, this is the thing? Oh, yes. Now Gentiles can legitimately extol and praise Yahweh. Because Jesus fulfilled the promise. So if that's the issue in the world, that Psalm 117 is not happening, what is the church to do? What is it that will lead other peoples, other groups, other nations to praise Yahweh? Three things have to happen. I'm just going to take this right out of Romans 15. Three things have to happen for Psalm 117 to occur in the world. Number one, somebody got to say something. They have to be told. They have to be told. And I've heard an awful lot about in the last oh, couple of decades about, well, it's just lifestyle evangelism. And then someone wrongly misquotes Francis of Assisi that says, preach the gospel always, use words if necessary. He didn't say that, by the way. And I'm just going to be a good, poor, a good person, mostly moral and decent, and then people will, you know, figure out the gospel. <laughs> How's business? Not so great. You know, an awful lot of moral people who are in no way communicating the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and to one another. Somebody has to say something. 
Romans 10, how will they hear unless somebody preaches? How are they going to preach unless somebody sends them? Somebody got to say something. Use words, yes. But what we say matters immensely and intensely. What we say and how we say it. Secondly, these people have to experience God's love, his loving kindness, and his faithfulness if they're going to praise him for it. Now, how in the world are they going to experience God's loving kindness and his truthfulness, his faithfulness? Well, probably over a Sam's lasagna at your house some weekend this summer. Because they're going to see it, and they're going to hear your family talk about it, and your family's going to, one of your kids is going to make that embarrassing noise again. I know, I know, it's going to happen. But this is how they're going to experience it themselves. They're going to feel like it is fitting. Third thing, God's people have to understand that this is part of God's plan. Our mission is to demonstrate worship. It's so contagious. It's the most viral thing ever. And so, this is what I would say. Missions is telling people to praise God and then showing them why. It's love, not arrogance. Missions is telling people to praise God and then showing them why. Love, not arrogance. This is an enormous difference from uh, imperialistic cultural exporting, which for a lot of the 19th and 20th centuries, our missions work looked like, hey, let's go to your country and let's try to make you act like an American. That's not the gospel. We're not trying to import or, sorry, we're not trying to export and implement our culture on anybody else's. We're simply demonstrating our delight. We're getting busted praising. That's what our missions is all about. It is hugely different from a message of condemnation that says, hey, 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 I got some really, really, really great news. It's really great news. I mean, it's such good news. Oh, this is so good news. I have found the cure of being really ugly. You should take this. Ow. That's not how we win friends and influence people. Instead, we simply demonstrate our delight. We worship we can't help but talk about the thing that we love most, which begs the question, what is it that you and I love most? Our worship fuels and drives our mission, and this matters. The words of Jesus himself, Matthew 24, 14, is that in this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's going to be preached. God's going to get it done. God gets it done. The question is, do we willfully participate in his program? Who exactly is supposed to do these things? Well, one of the most core passages, I think, in all of the New Testament about this comes from the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, heard it called the Great Commission. And frequently, it starts in verse 19. But really and truly, the Great Commission, we have to start Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. And here's sort of the end of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. That's not good. That's not how it's supposed to be. There's a fracture in the fellowship. There's supposed to be 12, but one of them is swinging from a branch over a potter's field. Hmm. It's a good indicator. Jesus is not waiting for us to get our acts together and to have just the exact right team before we can start demonstrating and describing our delight. This little fellowship was fractured. That's okay. They go to Galilee. Where? To the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. 
And when they saw him, they worshipped him. You think? It's the risen Lord Jesus, lifted in all of his glory, the God-man, dead. But at that name, God raised him and gave him the name that is above every name. And there he is, fully demonstrating his glory. And some of them worshipped. And yet, you can't get away from the rest of this verse. But some doubted. Like, yeah, I don't know. That tremendously blinding aura that is around him because it's the risen Lord Jesus. Pretty impressive, but I, I don't know. No, I saw him dead. I know he was dead. I know that he's alive. Yeah, but I don't know. This is good news. You'd never make this up and include this, by the way. You and I are always going to have some degree of doubt in this life until faith becomes sight. If you're waiting to describe and demonstrate your delight until you fully have it all figured out, okay, stop that. It's okay to have some doubts and not know all of the fine details. doesn't matter. Demonstrate, describe your delight. And Jesus came and said to them, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the Lord of lords. I am the King of kings. This comes from the desk of Jesus, the Christ. Therefore, what I'm about to tell you is not advice. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's Jesus' mission. It's his job. We get to look to him, come together as we do, hold him up as more beautiful and believable, worship because we think he's delightful, and that becomes contagious to the world around us. And then we have to say something. Missions happens because worship doesn't. I'll just nuance that slightly. Discipleship happens because worship doesn't. See, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ value him more than anything else. I used to, candidly, have a lot of guilt and shame and frustration that I did not have a more pressing burden for the lost. But as my desire and my affection for the Lord Jesus increased, I found that my affection and burden for the lost also increased. If this is true, if he is who he says he is, and he is, then man, what this world needs is more of him. So the question is, of course, unless you have a passionate love of God as a disciple of Christ, you'll never have a love for the lost. You'll just feel guilty. So do you have a passionate love of the Lord? Make no mistake, God will accomplish his purpose and all nations will ultimately praise him. He will be. He already is the delight of nations. He will get the most glory when every language and tribe and tongue on earth is tuned to sing his praise. That's why there's so many. When I used to lead different youth ministry groups, or now elder meetings, same idea, we would do icebreakers. And one of the icebreakers would be, hey, if you could have any superpower in the world, what would it be? Except fly. Everybody wants to fly. No, no, no. That one's, look at that one later. Read First John 3, 2. Not fly. What other superpower would you like? And there's, you know, I'd like to breathe underwater. Okay, well, I want to be able to, like, have x-ray vision. And I go, okay, creepy. You just disqualified yourself from youth ministry. <laughs> what other superpower? And mine, the one that I always said was, I wanted to be able to speak every language in the world. 
fluently. And I was reminded again this past couple of weeks walking through these different places in Europe and just being unable to communicate effectively. I wanted to be able to speak every single language in the world, but then it occurs to me, there's a reason that I can't. There's a reason that I don't. And it's not just because Rosetta Stone is too expensive. That's not it. Because if I could speak every language, then I wouldn't need you. And I wouldn't need the people at Ciutat Nova, the church in Barcelona. And I wouldn't need the people at La Sorgente in Mosciano, Italy. But there is a body on earth that exists that speaks about 11,227 languages, and it is the church. It's the church. Heaven's not going to look like we think it's going to look, by the way. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, John writes this. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. John hates math as much as I do. Good. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Apparently, John could tell just by looking that there are different people groups represented, all of them. Many of us give that mental assent, but then we kind of think, well, it's somebody else's job or somebody else's problem. But how will they know that God is good if not through us? I wonder, does anybody know you? And because of that knowledge, praise God, who is in heaven and call him good, like Matthew 5, 16 says. Well, what's the point of all this? We're supposed to come to the Bible, come to these Psalms, and our thinking and our feeling is supposed to be changed. We are to think differently about God. We are to feel differently about God. This is the, the beginnings of wisdom. I'm always reminded about that great experience that we read about in Isaiah chapter 6. Maybe one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, is given a vision, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up exalted, seated on his throne, and seraphim fly around the throne with two wings, they cover their faces, with two, they cover their feet, and with two, they fly, and they sing nonstop, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the train of his robe fills the temple, the largest structure known to Isaiah in those days, and the whole earth would tremble. And Isaiah sees this, this image of God. And he says, I'm coming undone. I'm experiencing what the military calls rapid disassembly. I'm disintegrating at the molecular level because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips, but there is atonement. He is brought to where he can have access. And seeing this incredible vision, God himself says, Isaiah, how are people going to know about this? You know what Isaiah says? He goes, oh, send Hannah. That's her job. No, that would have been nonsense. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got a, we got a, we got a missions guy. He'll, he'll take care of that. No, you know what Isaiah says? The only thing that makes rational sense. Here's me. Send me. Because having seen and experienced that, it was the only rational, logical reaction. And then God says, well, go get him, tiger. Oh, by the way, it's not going to work. They're not going to listen. Your message will fall on deaf ears. You do it anyway. To which Isaiah says, of course, because I have seen the delight of my life. We say it all the time, but we 
take initiative when we trust God with the results. But what if they don't understand? What if they don't get it? Not your call. You and I get the opportunity to share and describe and discuss our delight. Favorite verse, I think, these days for missions-mindedness in the New Testament comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Peter writes this. He says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What's he saying? Allow him to be beautiful and believable in your heart and your mind. Dwell on his word. Meditate day and night. Have you really thought about this Jesus? Is he truly the delight and the desire of your heart? You, you don't have to work hard to explain things that you're truly crazy about. You want to ask me why I love my wife? It'll take about two nanoseconds, and I'll tell you everything you want to know because it's, it, it's there. I can tell you why. And I wonder if someone asked you, why, why, why do you love Jesus? If you'd have to him and haw and go, well, you know, hell's going to be hotter than East Texas in July. Uh, it's about all. It's about all I got. That's not delight. That's not, that's not legitimate, precious to your heart and to your mind. Do it, he says, with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if, but when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. See, here's the deal. We're in a, in a study in a series on the pursuit of wisdom. The wise man and woman of God knows this. Your life is a mission. Only real question is, what do you worship? Your life is a mission. What do you worship most? If you or I, or our church ever loses its commitment to global mission, to evangelism, to discipleship, it means that it has also lost its reason to worship, which means we're dead already. May it never be. May we be a people who are characterized by delight in our Savior. May we think and feel accordingly. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that even as we hear the sirens, someone is hurting that you are good. You have always been ascending, God. We thank you for your loving kindness, for your truth, for your faithfulness. Father, thank you that you have never been content to merely have us go groping in the darkness. You have sent, you have sent, you have sent, and now you send us. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, Anyone here this morning whose delight is in something else, would you move irresistibly by your spirit now and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he willingly paid the debt of all of our sin, that he fulfilled the demands of the law, that is perfection, and he offers a free exchange. Would you help anyone here this morning, Father, who has never believed that, to believe that and to begin to delight in your truth and in your faithfulness and your loving kindness. Father, for the rest of us who have sort of gotten in a rut, who love you and are thankful for eternal life and all that, but you have decreased as the object of our greatest affection and attention, would you well up and swell up anew? And would you make our joy contagious? Father, for those who love you, 
who love you deeply, who you are the source of all of their delight, and they are being used to bring delight to the nations, would you continue to encourage them? Would you continue to uh, surround them with other people similarly? And Father, sometime, would you convict us by your spirit to answer the question honestly, what do I love most? What do I really worship? And may we all get busted praising you this week. Father, we love you because you love this person. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.